waiting is hard. <laughs> Teach me, Lord, to wait is an appropriate plea to our God. And we are here this morning waiting on our God to answer some of our prayers that we've even expressed this morning. And we will be patient with him, but also continue to be prayerful for those that we care about. We are blessed in this congregation with so many individuals that have had poor health that are now improving, as well as those who still need to improve and teach us, Lord, to wait as we uh, wait for the help that he will provide. Glad to have you with us today. I invite you to take a Bible and to either log on or to open up to the eighth chapter of the book of Acts. And we are going to spend probably a good 95% of our time just in that one chapter and looking at about 15 verses at one of my go-to texts. I love Acts chapter 8. It is a, it is a great place to go to refresh ourselves on what we're doing as Christians in trying to teach others and in trying to make sure that we are doing what God has asked of us ourselves. Appreciate those again, as our brother pointed out at the outset of services, who are visiting with us, those of you that are new to our church family, those of you that this is your first time with us, and those who've been traveling that are now back in the state or back in the country or back on this side of the world or whatever the case may be, wherever you have been, we're glad to be reunited with you. I want us to use Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40 as our text today. It is a text that you are likely familiar with if you've been a Christian for any considerable amount of time. It may be a text that is new to you, and that's fine as well. And I was thinking about this particular study, and I've been thinking about this now for the last month or so, where there are three target audiences. One, saints who are trying to teach others about how to become Christians. And that would be most of us who are here, who are already Christians. And we want to teach others about what baptism looks like and what salvation entails. Two, those who are not Christians yet, but are considering becoming Christians. Certainly, we want you to think seriously about the things that we speak about today. And thirdly, those who believe they're saved, but maybe after an exploration of some of these verses today come to a conclusion, I may not be as safe as I thought I was and may need to make an appropriate correction going forward. And so we're looking at the characters and we're looking at some lessons in our study together this morning. I want us to look at the two characters one by the name of Philip and the other who is unnamed, just called an Ethiopian or the Ethiopian unit. And then I want us to derive seven very important lessons. And this is, to borrow from Ben Ray's point a couple of weeks ago, maybe a good lesson to take notes on. All lessons are good to take mental notes of. But if you want to follow along, we're going to look at two characters and seven lessons. But I want to begin by reading the text. And typically, when I do a study that deals with maybe 10 or 12 or 15 verses, as is the case, I read through it rather rapidly and then come back and make my points. But I want to actually read through this text a little bit more deliberately today, not necessarily slowly, but just very carefully. 
And as my preacher friend sometimes says, look at this as if you've never looked at the text before with fresh eyes. And so in verse 26, it says that an angel of the Lord, this is Acts 8, verse 26, spoke to Philip. And he says, arise and go toward the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. He arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace or Candace, depending on how you like to pronounce it, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? The Ethiopian responded, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this, quote, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth, unquote. So the eunuch answered Philip and he says, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus. And passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. I love this text. I love this text so much. And then I went back and I looked through 20-some years of preaching. And I've never actually done a sermon just on this text. So I'm going to try it out on you. And if you like it, let me know that you like it. If you don't like it, let me think that you did like it. But more seriously than that, I think this is a go-to place when you're trying to teach someone about how to become a Christian because it addresses the character of Philip. It addresses the character of this Ethiopian, and it tells us about some important lessons. So I want us to start with the character of this man by the name of Philip. If you go back to Acts chapter 8 and you read verses 5 through about verse 13, you will see that he is already a man of what we could call stellar character. So if you want to jot those verses down and read them later, you're welcome to do so. We won't go back that far in Acts chapter 8. But this is a good man. 
He's not a perfect man because there are no perfect individuals except save one, Jesus the Christ. But he's a good man. And he is dedicated to the Lord's will. He's the kind of person that you'd love to have as your friend or as your father or as your brother in Christ or a brother in familial terms. I want us to make four quick observations about Philip by looking at verses 26 through 40. First, Philip was willing to go to tough geographic areas to preach the gospel. Verse 26, the last sentence says, this is desert. I remember the first couple of times that I visited Southern California where we lived for about 12 years and I wanted to go see the desert. And I remember driving out to the desert all by myself before I was married, before I had anybody that really cared about me, at least in California. And I would go out there alone without water, without telling anyone where I was going. And I'd walk around for hours just to see what I could see. And people thought I was crazy. And I can't understand why they would think I was crazy for acting that way. But I wanted to see a desert. After living there for a couple of years, wasn't that impressive. It's dry. There's no water. And it's hot. Why would you want to go there? And it reminds me of the same preacher friend of mine whose father went out to the desert and preached for a dozen years or so in Southern California, probably some 45, 55 years ago. And he says, Dad, why are we going here? This place is ugly. He says, because there are souls here that need to be saved. I thought that was very telling. I hope that I would have the attitude of that older preacher as well. Sometimes we have to go into difficult places, maybe not necessarily a physical desert void of water and the comfort of air conditioning and a humid environment that we are associated with here in the Mid-South, but we may have to interact with difficult situations in order to get the gospel preached. And Philip says, I'll go there. I'll take on that mission. And he says, as the prophet would have said years before, Lord, send me. Secondly, I think it's important for us to note in verse 27 that it says he arose and he went, which tells us that he was quick to do what the Lord said to do. Verse 26 says, go and preach in this desert and go and find this man that you're going to eventually come to learn as the Ethiopian eunuch as we we come upon in verse 27. And he says, well, I'll get to that in a few days. Well, no, that's not what he is. He arose and he went. And if you drop down to verse 30, it says he ran to him. Philip was the kind of teacher, the kind of preacher, the kind of evangelist who says, there's an opportunity to teach. I'm there. I want to get the job done. Philip is a good man. Thirdly, we can appreciate that Philip was willing to open his mouth and preach Jesus. I love the way that it's rendered in verse 35 where it says, he opened his mouth. The Bible did not have to include that particular statement, but we have to open our mouths in order to express Jesus Christ. Now, we can do it with writing as well. We can do it with blogging. We can do it with texting and all those things. But ultimately, when you're speaking with a friend, you're going to have to speak to the friend or the coworker or the family member and say, let me tell you about Jesus. And that takes boldness. You know, it's easy to talk about Jesus among our family. And it's easy to talk about the cross among people that share that faith. 
But when you're dealing with people who are going to be antagonistic to the gospel message, and all of us have interacted with people who the reaction that we get when we want to talk about something spiritual is less than good, then it's difficult. We've got to have the confidence, the boldness, and the wherewithal to speak up and open our mouths to preach Jesus. And fourthly, Philip was dedicated to the continual work that he'd been dedicated to. A lot of times we read through verse 39, and we just kind of leave off verse 40. But I purposely read verse 40 where it says, Philip was not found in a different city as he'd been carried away in this seemingly miraculous way, uh, resting and saying, look at the good that I've done. Look at the conversion that's transpired. But he is consistently preaching. I got to admit, when someone accepts an invitation to study the Bible with me or when someone says, I'm ready to be baptized after maybe uh, we studied with them for a few weeks or a few months, there's a sense of, all right, now I can rest and take a break for a few weeks. No, that's not what Philip does. This is the character of a man who is dedicated to the Lord's work, and we learn a lot from Philip. But there's also a lot that we learn about the character of this man from Ethiopia. His name has not been recorded in history, but let me share with you five things about him that I think are important for us to appreciate, especially as we draw the applications or the seven lessons at the tail end of our lesson in just a couple of moments. One is the New King James Version says he was a man of great authority under this queen. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us, secondly, that he was trustworthy as evidenced by this authority. I don't know how much this queen had, but I assume that it was a considerable sum. And he was in charge of the treasury. And when you have a banker or when you have a treasurer or when you have a trustee involved in financial matters, you want that person to be trustworthy You want that person to be counted on, and you want that person not to have sticky fingers, so to speak. And that certainly was the case with the Ethiopian man on this particular occasion. He developed his character as being one of a trustworthy and fair-minded man who was able to take care of the finances without getting involved in taking those finances. All this to say and to prove, thirdly, that he was a religious, he was devout, he was studious, and he was a worshiper. Now, was he a Christian? No, not not at the beginning of the story. At the end of the story, spoiler alert, he becomes a Christian. We already read that. On that note, just because your friend is a nice person or your coworker is a nice coworker, or your neighbor is a trustworthy person and goes to church A, B, or C, does not make your coworker, your friend, or your neighbor a Christian. Not until they have done what the scriptures have said. These days, we call everybody, when I say we, I'm talking about we as a population, you know, we call everyone Christians. Well, he's a Christian. How do you know that? Well, he goes to church. Where does he go to church? I don't know. But he's a Christian. 
Well, how do you know if he, if he could be believing in all kinds of things and very likely is believing things that are contrary to God's word? So he may be a Christian, but he's probably in error if he's not doing the things if it, that is they're not outlined. Or if he became a Christian, and we'll put that in big air quotes, in a way which is not determined by Acts chapter 8 and, and similar texts, that's important to make sure that we get that right. But if you look at verse 27, it says, he had been to Jerusalem for the purpose of worship. He wasn't there for vacation. He was there to worship. So he was some sort of a Jewish proselyte or a Jewish follower or some sort of a character who believed in God. We don't know exactly his background. And there's all kinds of studies and speculations as to where he would have gotten the truth or at least the the Jewish truth uh, or an understanding of Jewish religion. But then in the next text, it says... On his way home, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. There's a lot we can learn from the Ethiopian. I go to church, I don't need to read my Bible. Well, no, I go to church and then the rest of the week I read my Bible, right? Because that's what the Ethiopian did. Because that's what the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17 and searching the scriptures daily. He was religious, devout, studious, and he was a worshiping man. And I really like verse 31, which teaches us that he was a humble man, a man of meekness and humility. When he says in verse 31, I don't understand. As a teacher, as a preacher, one of the greatest things to hear from someone you're trying to interact with or teach is when they finally admit, I don't understand this. Good. Thank you for being humble enough to admit that. I can work with that. What I can't work with is, is I don't need to understand. Can't help you there because you've already got all the answers yourself. Or you are a know-it-all. Or you're unwilling to admit, I just don't get it. I was studying with someone just a few weeks ago and the person said, I, I just not sure about this. I thought, that's great. And even going so far as to say, I've got some dumb questions. No, you don't. You've got questions. That's what you've got. No such thing as dumb questions when it comes to God's word and trying to understand it better. And then as we read in verses 36 and 37, he was an obedient man to the will of the Lord. What keeps me from being baptized? I need to be saved. You've taught me enough. I need to do it now. Incidentally, as an aside, Philip doesn't say, give us some thought for the next month or two, and then let's, do, let's get back to that. He says, let's do it right now. So I want us to then transition then to the real heart of our study in the last half of our study. And that is seven lessons that are learned from these two characters. And these are lessons that I believe are profound. And I've seen them work in lives of individuals who have wanted to know more about the truth. Number one is this. Religiousness and sincerity are wonderful but they are not enough to be fully pleasing to the Lord. There are a lot of people in the world who are religious. A lot of people in middle Tennessee who are religious. Someone once said, we have the Bible belt and then here's the buckle. Here we are right in the middle of it all. And a lot of our friends and the vast majority of our coworkers probably are churched, put that in quotes. They go somewhere. They are religious and they are probably sincere. I don't doubt sincerity. I, in fact, we need to be cautious about doubting someone's sincerity. 
If they sincerely believe that, they sincerely believe that. They may be believing wrong and practicing wrong, but they're sincere in that. So we've got to work with that and say, okay, I understand you're sincere, but let's look at these passages. Was the Ethiopian sincere? Absolutely. Was he authentic? Absolutely. Was he religious? Without a doubt. But was he faithful to God at the beginning of the story? No. He's not a Christian. He's not doing what the Bible has taught us is necessary in order to become Christians. So in verse 28, it says he was reading Isaiah. Verse 27, he had gone to worship. He was a religious, sincere man, but it wasn't enough. Even the apostle Paul would famously say in Acts 22 and then blending into 23, he says, men, Brethren, friends, listeners, I have lived in all good conscience, and I have lived my life in sincerity up until this point. And he had been a man who had been doing some really awful things to Christians. But he says, I've been sincere about it. Could I mean, just, just, to, just to throw this at the wall here, could a person be a sincere worshiper of Satan? Absolutely. There's a whole religion dedicated to that sincerity. So we don't question the sincerity. We say, wait a minute, you're sincere about the wrong thing. And you've got to make sure that you are authentic to what the Bible has to say. Let me suggest to you, secondly, that a lesson that we learn is that Jesus Christ is the central character of not just the New Testament, Matthew to Revelation, but from Genesis all the way to Malachi and then into the New Testament. So wait a minute, Jesus doesn't, isn't born until Matthew and Luke, and I read the accounts there, and he doesn't come on the scene until Mark chapter 1 that we read there earlier in our reading today. Jesus is the central character of the Bible. You could go through from Genesis to Malachi, and you can say, here's Jesus here, he is here, here he is here. Now, sometimes you have to look a little bit harder, and you have to get a little bit creative and getting deep into your study, but he is in every book. Verse 28, he was reading Isaiah the prophet, and then verse 35, he opened at this scripture, and he preached Jesus to him. What Philip did not do is scratch his head and say, mm, Isaiah, 53rd chapter, that's not the best place for us to start. Let's go someplace else. More on that in just a moment. But he says, let's deal with Jesus right here. Now, I agree that of all the places in the Old Testament for a person to be reading to go to Jesus, Isaiah 53 may be one of the easiest segues into that subject. But the point still remains. Which brings us then to this third thing, and that is Jesus and baptism are tightly connected. Look at verse 35. Philip opened his mouth, beginning at this scripture, what did he preach? Did he preach baptism? Trick question, right? Did he, did he, did he preach church doctrine? That's a trick question probably as well. He preached Jesus to him. I don't know how long the sermon or the study was. I don't know how, how long they were in that chariot riding along. Maybe it was a half an hour. Maybe it was longer. I don't know. But he preached Jesus to him. And then in verse 36, he says, the Ethiopian that is, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Which tells me that when you teach Jesus, you teach about water and to teach about baptism. And unfortunately, 
in the denominational world in which most of our friends are associated, when they teach Jesus, they never learn about water, they never learn about baptism, which tells me with all due respect, they are not learning fully about Jesus because you cannot divorce those two. They are tightly connected, which goes back to why I chose Mark chapter 1, verses 6 to 11. The word baptism or baptized is used, I count, five times in the course of about eight verses in Mark chapter 1, verses 5 through 11 or so. Now, there's something to be said about John's baptism and Jesus' baptism, and I understand that. But Jesus and baptism are married together. And in fact, so much so that John says, why am I baptizing you? It should be vice versa. Number four, we should do our best to teach where a person is. Sometimes that's hard, but it should be our objective. Go back to verse 35. Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. Again, he doesn't say, I can't work with Isaiah 53. I'm not prepared for that today. Now, that being said, there are times where someone's going to come to you with a question about a biblical passage and say, what do you think about Ezekiel 42? (laughs) Can you give me just a couple of minutes to reread through that and refresh myself on that particular passage or whatever? I was studying with someone a month or two ago and uh, the person brought up a passage in First Chronicles. I was on the phone. I was glad because I was panicking. So I was like, <laughs> I didn't know what it was. I'd look. Oh, yeah, I see what it is now. But the point that I'm making is that if a person says, I want to talk about the church, let's talk about the church, and then take him to Jesus. I want to talk about the uncertainties of life and death. Do that. And then... Move to Jesus because everything goes back to Jesus. Deal with the person where they are as much as possible. And if you are not absolutely comfortable with that, you have two options. Well, three. One is to give up. That's, that's not an option. Take that away. One is to phone a friend for help, and you can do that. And this congregation has lots of men and lots of women who are willing to say, I'll help you with that, and we can work together. And three, there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying, I'm not real sure about your question today. Can I have just three or four days to kind of study that a little bit and get back to you? And you can cheat and use a friend during those three to four days as well. And that's okay as well, because it's not cheating. Someone once said, the Bible is an open book test. No sense in closing it. Just keep it open and keep reading it and keep learning from it. Number five. And that is an important one, is that baptism cannot happen until a person's belief is assessed. Until a person's belief is assessed, there cannot be a baptism. I've said this before over the course of the last 6 to 12 months, because that's been on my mind a lot for a number of different reasons. But there is never an occasion, I've never seen it, never seen it done, and no longer, I mean, no no matter how long I live, I probably will never see it. Someone baptized without first having to believe in Jesus and that confession being made. Now, it can be made in a couple of different phrases or a couple of different ways. I've even heard of people who are mute who will write out on a chalkboard, I've seen it done. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that's their confession because they cannot use their mouth physically. 
But I've never seen a person go down into the waters of baptism and say, no, sure, it doesn't matter what you believe. No, we say, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you believe that he's the Messiah? Do you believe that he is the chosen one? Whatever the, the question is that the person who's taking the confession chooses to use, and there's a couple of variations that are appropriate, certainly. One necessarily isn't as good as the other. He says, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Or he says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, which tells me that at some point Philip talked to him about Jesus being the Son of God for him to put all those pieces together. And then once the person says, yes, I do believe that, and makes that confession with his or her mouth, then that person is baptized. If the person says no, well, why do you want to be baptized? Just to be on the safe side? Just to get wet? Just for the fun of it? To make someone happy? No, we're not doing that. That's not what we do. We do it based on your belief. Number six, and this is something that our religious friends will take issue with. Immersion is the only acceptable form of baptism. Being buried in water is the only acceptable form. How do I know that? Look at verse 26. The last sentence says, this is desert. I don't know exactly why the Holy Spirit insisted for Luke to include that statement. One is the point that we made at the outset of our study. But I do wonder, do you think there was a canteen of water on board the chariot in a desert? You say, well, not if you're driving it. Yeah, me, because I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't prepare like that in California. But I'm sure they had some water on board. They had probably gone to the local Walmart and picked up a case of water and loaded it in the back. But they had a canteen of water. They had something to drink. Otherwise, they're going to die out there. If sprinkling would work, just take a few drops of it. Then if you drop down to verse 38, where it says, he commanded the chariot to stand still, Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. By the way, the focus here is, is my understanding is not that Philip went down into the water, it's that the Ethiopian went down into the water. That being said, 99% of the baptisms, well, maybe less these days because of the way uh, geographic structures are, are involving two people going down into the water. I'll, I'll give you parentheses point. There are, you may, you may understand, there are baptistries that, uh, where you can only get one person into the water or a bathtub where you can only get one person into the water and therefore the person isn't going down. I will, I will tell you this, I like going down with the person because I, I want to be able to con- control the person uh, because I've had a few people fight me. They want to be baptized, but they're afraid of water. And I always, I generally will ask, are you afraid of water? If they tell me, yeah, I'm like, oh boy, someone else jump in here with me because we're going to tackle this person, get them down there. <laughs> but I've had hands come up and stuff, and I get back down in there. So it's easier if you're in the water with them. In my, but I, I remember the first time I preached at a place in California, and someone came forward to be baptized, and I looked behind me, and there's no water. Next thing I know, the Lord's table top came come off, and then there's water in, underneath the Lord's table. So it doesn't matter how you're baptized, whether it's in a baptistry or it's in a pool or it's in a sauna, it's in a bathtub, whatever the case may be. Uh, not a sauna, but a, you know, you know what I mean? Hot tub kind of thing, jacuzzi thing. The water doesn't matter. I was talking with someone just a couple of days ago and they said that someone really came to a preacher 25 years ago and said, will you please show me the sins in the baptistry? And he was sincere about it. 
Because he didn't understand that you can't look in here and say, yep, those those sins that we washed off in the last baptism. No, it's not that. It's not the washing of the filthiness of the flesh, as 1 Peter 3 talks about, but it's the cleansing of a conscience, and it involves immersion. You find me an instance where a person is baptized for the mission of his or her sins in the book of Acts or the New Testament in general, where it is not through a burial or an immersion, and then we can have a discussion. We can still have the discussion. I'm not being that much of a bad guy, but it's not going to happen. And so our religious friends who teach sprinkling or who teach pouring have gotten it wrong. Do I question their sincerity? No, I don't. I believe they're sincere in what they believe. But it's not according to Scripture. Which brings me then to this seventh and final point, and that is baptism is fully essential to one's salvation. When did the Ethiopian rejoice? There's an article title there you could write sometime. When did the Ethiopian rejoice? After he was baptized. Not until he had confessed Jesus and been baptized did he say, now I am excited and filled with joy as outlined in verse 39. Baptism is for salvation. And it goes in that order. Salvation doesn't happen And then you are baptized, which is what nine out of 10 denominations teach. They will teach you in virtually every denomination, accept Jesus, say the prayer, whatever that may be, ask him into your heart, commit to him, you are now saved, and then we will be baptized at some point in the future. In fact, In many churches, they will have designated days for baptisms, which is foreign to us. And we're like, never heard of such a thing, except we have heard of such a thing. But they'll have every every, uh, three months, we'll do our baptisms. And if you say, well, I'd like to be baptized. Well, that's in the two and a half months. We'll, We'll get it done. Where in the New Testament do you find a person who says, I want to do what is right and is told, we'll do that in a few months? In the very hour of the night, another article title that is famously put out there years ago. Baptism is for salvation, not salvation, and then baptism. These are things that are probably, for the majority of those who are present, not controversial. But for some, are. And going back to the beginning where we started with our target audiences, it may be that you have been mistaught. On this particular subject. And so we just simply ask, what about you? Have you, been, have you been baptized for the remission of your sins? Have you been taught correctly or have you been taught incorrectly? And we certainly want you to be saved today. I hope that this lesson has helped you not just reinforce your faith in what we believe, and equip you to teach others more effectively going forward, but to also reinstore the need to make changes if that needs to happen with you this morning, or if you need to make some sort of correction and to be restored to the Lord through repentance. Indeed, just because a person is baptized doesn't mean that he or she is going to come out of the waters of baptism and never sin again. I, I wish that were the case. 
I wish that I could say that for every person in here that was the case, but we will all as Christians acknowledge I still struggle post-baptism and still make mistakes and still have regrets and still have some guilt because of things that I do. God forgives and is faithful and just to forgive us if we confess those sins, and we're happy to help you this morning. If you are a soul that needs, and indeed we all are, and if we can help you in any way, let us know while we stand and while we sing.